like this year, I've, I've seen more Juneteenth hostility than I know what to do with it. But it's just like, that's the part of American history. Like, don't take it personal. We weren't there when it happened, but we are the keepers of what happened as a result of being here now. So we can't shy from it, you know? So for those that are like, you know, get over it or, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's 4th of July. It's deeper than that. Welcome to the East Anchorage Book Club podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gray, and today is July 4th. On the show, we have Jasmine Smith, lifelong Alaskan, entrepreneur, and community organizer. From her youth in Eagle River to her leadership on the Mountain View Community Council. From the formation of her first important company, Baby Vend, to her heading up the most recent Juneteenth celebrations on the Delaney Park Strip. We discuss it all. After Jasmine's interview, Jonathan Taylor, a former staffer for Governor Bill Walker, will read an abridged version of Frederick Douglass's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Jasmine Smith, welcome to the podcast. Yay! I'm excited. I'm so glad you're here. We've been planning this one for a while. Yes. You grew up in Eagle River. I did. What was that like? Well, it was like growing up in a different world. Honestly, you know, in some capacities, it was very much small town separated from Anchorage. So we kind of felt like we were in a bubble. But I can say growing up there, you know, being one of four black people in my elementary school and then one of like seven in middle school and one of 30 out of 2000 in high school, it made my lenses completely different. I definitely like I can say, honestly, I went through some things out there, but it shaped me like who I am today in terms of my identity. Why were you in Eagle River? That's a good question I always ask and blame my mom. So my mom was in the army and she got stationed here in Alaska. And when it was time for her to get out of the military, she always tells me the story. I wanted to go back to Georgia, but I knew that in Georgia, you would probably have street smarts and not so many book opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then in Alaska, you would probably have more opportunities. So she said she liked it and it felt far away from what we knew, what we were used to. So for her, she saw Eagle River as like a clean slate, like mm. a whole new world in like lenses and view to raise me in. I didn't agree, but here we are, 30-something years later. Is she still in Eagle River? She is. And she is very involved in the community out there and in politics, etc. So she's still out there. She's a homeowner, and she, she loves it. Do you have thoughts about Eagle River's influence on Anchorage politics today? I mean, honestly, I, I, when I was out there, we always had a Eagle River first and like Eagle River needs kind of mentality we were raised in. So I, I, I openly never saw the influence. I was raised with a lot of like Eagle River is different. It's its own thing. It should be itself. We move different. We think different. So it really wasn't until I got older that I heard more talk saying that they felt like they weren't connected, you know, like it was a disconnect or they weren't represented, I guess, or like heard. So I will say I honestly wasn't surprised when I saw Eagle Exit because I just kind of grew up hearing mm -hmm. that stuff and understanding that stuff from the standpoint of people who lived out there, you know? Mm -hmm. Now, you said that there was a few other black kids in your school. Mm -hmm. Were y'all all friends? I mean, did you hang together? We did, yeah. So I had this teacher in high school, Mr. Cat. Shout out to Mr. Cat. And he used to joke and call us the Black Student Coalition of Chugiak because we used to band together. It was like 20, 30 of us. We're still friends. And if there was a problem, issue, concern, we'd all jump on it together and like, you know, kind of, we try to represent to the best of our abilities. You are no longer in Eagle River. You are, mm -hmm. you live in Mountain View. Yes. You are a business in Mountain View. Yes. 
what made Mountain Dew the place that you were going to go to from Eagle River? I will say on record, I love this question. I absolutely love Mountain View. Um, I feel like innovation and success and stories can happen in any kind of community. And I've always recognized that all part, like parts of our community needs to be empowered and they need to be supported and they need to be heard. But it's hard to do that and then shy away from the places that need the most help. So my thought process was multiple things. Number one, I love the diversity. I love that all my neighbors are from different places and it was really harmonious in that sense of we could all be different together. And so for me, that was ideal. I honestly love the fact that living in Mountain View is like living in the 70s or the 80s. You see mountains of bikes outside. Kids still play outside. Not a lot of technology. So I love that community piece that I know my neighbors. But I think most importantly, I've always been drawn to like the underdog places. And I understood like if I'm going to practice what I preach and say I want to empower marginalized communities and folks who don't have a voice, I have to go in those spaces and show them I'm not leaving, you know, or abandoning. I'm building my empire here with you and bringing you to. So those are the things that always kind of like keep me going when everyone's like, why do you live in Mountain View? I'm like, I love Mountain View. I'm not, I wasn't dropped there. You know, I'm not a, a tragic statistic. I chose strategically to live there and raise my kids there. And I love it. How many kids do you have? I have the twins. They're seven. And you are a single mom. I am. And you're famous. Aww. At least Anchorage famous. Okay, yeah. I like Anchorage that. famous. Thank you. <laughs> because you're an entrepreneur. Yes. For Baby Bend yes. is kind of your, your uh, I guess. It's my baby. Your banner. Your yes. banner business. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. Have you always had business ideas? Or talk us through, you know, you move out of Eagle River. You moved to Mountain yes. View. How did you make yeah. this happen? So I can't say, when I was little, my mom would joke that I used to play office a lot. I played board meetings. I'd fire my stuffed animals. So I think it was like always in me. But I tell the honest story. I really got into entrepreneurship when I went to college. So I went to college at Sheldon Jackson College in Sitka. And then after they closed down, I went to Atlanta. And uh, a black experiencing that a lot of black Alaskans go through is we get told we talk different. Mm -hmm. We talk funny. We talk proper. So down there, it was to my advantage. So all of the college students and the rappers would pay me to make phone calls for them and act like their manager or help them book a gig or help them sound professional on the phone. So I'm like, oh, this is cool. What do I call this? So then one of my professors said, it's called consulting. I'm like, oh, so I'm getting paid to just talk professional and do my thing. So it kind of started there, honestly, and it just kind of like, grew and made me realize like, wow, I'm in college and I don't have to struggle. It was like a good side hustle, you know? So I kind of started there and just as the years progressed, I, uh, I started my business and people don't know, my first business was actually in rural Alaska. So when I was in high school, my mother had me do the Rose Urban Exchange Student Program through Humanities Forum and I lived in Port Hyden in my junior year for a little while. And after that experience of living in rural life and just learning the culture and how to hunt and subsistence and all that stuff, I loved it. So when I became an official consultant in my early 20s, I purposely went to rural Alaska. So my first few years, I wasn't even in Anchorage. I was in Angoon. I was in Antioch, Bethel, Quinnahawk, like all over the place. And that's where I chose to work. So that's kind of like my, my backstory. And then, of course, time moved on again and found out I was going to have twins and found myself in a mall stuck with my twins and no diapers. And that's when I was like, there's not a machine or something. I could buy some diapers in this mall. 
And that's basically where Baby Bin came from. I had no idea how to use a vending machine. I never touched one, owned one, but I just somehow said, I'm going to figure it out now. <laughs> and that's kind of how I started, started my last company. Because I think a lot of people might have found themselves in a mall yes. and thought, wow, I really wish there was a vending machine that I could get some diapers out of. The vast majority of them do not say, I'm going to open a vending machine company. Right. So how did you, A, think that was possible, and B, get the ball rolling for that to happen? So I'm going to tell you, I always, and I think you probably might like relate, I feel like sometimes when you're in crisis, you have the best ideas. At that time, I had preemie twin babies. I was in the middle of a treacherous divorce, barely housed. I think I, had, I think I might have been homeless. And you were mid-20s? Um, I was like 28, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was like pretty much homeless, had to go back to my mother's house. And so at that moment, I had a good idea, mm-hmm. but I was also in this crisis place of like, I have kids. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't work. I don't have daycare assistance. What can I do that I have my kids? That wasn't everything that really pushed me to be like, okay, Jasmine, like, what does this market look like? How do you do this? What is out there? Like, I was really driven by, I'm having rough patches with these babies. I don't know what I'm doing. And I got to do something different. And I think this is the way. So I think I really channeled, like, my feelings at that moment. And I was like, I got to do this. As a woman of color, and like, my family being Southern and knowing that in me as well. I just feel like we just, um, we sometimes we hustle differently. This is a great chance for me to do something different. This is a great chance for me to still be a parent, but then also explore this idea of generational wealth. And that alone kept me going. You know, Baby Ben wasn't overnight. I bought my machine and it, and it sat in my garage for like seven months because I was afraid. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to plug it in. So once I got through that, I had to do a lot of self-talk. I'm like, you got this. You can do it. So I had doubt along the way. But I think, honestly, my kids made me keep going. And, like, knowing what I had to do for my family, that kept me going. So you bought your first machine. Mm-hmm. It was in your garage. Where did that first machine end up? Yeah, so the very first machine went to Shockwave. Here oh, in I Anchorage. love Shockwave. Yeah, so, and I, like... And I take my son there all the time. I love Shockwave. Yes. So that was where my first machine went, and they were great. Like, my very first event was Shockwave. Just then, for the listeners, it's a trampoline park. Yes, the best trampoline park that I think a lot of parents love. Yes. You can take your kids to Shockwave and they'll be like quiet for like three hours. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Shockwave was my first location. Then my second location was Ted Stevens Airport. And that was shout out to Javier Robinson, the concession manager. I met him at a DBE conference and I went up to him and I said... What's a DBE conference? Disadvantaged Business Enterprise. So mm-hmm. it's a conference for like small businesses women businesses, minority businesses. So I went up to him and I'm like, hey, my name is Jasmine. I want to be in the airport. And he's like, let's know they all say. Uh-huh. So do these 18 steps and we'll see. And I'm like, no, I'm going to do it. And he's like, yeah, we'll see. You know, eight months later, I'm like, I'm back. Put me in the airport. <laughs> do you feel that there were certain challenges that you faced as a black woman that other entrepreneurs wouldn't have faced? Oh, absolutely. Number one, access to capital. That's hard for all entrepreneurs. Um, you know, number two, just getting even support to believe in my mission. You know, a lot of times, like I tell people all the time, like when you're uh, a black woman in business, a woman of color in business, it's like you have to triple prove yourself, over explain, over justify your rates, your prices, And then even though I knew I had a good idea and I knew that I had previous business experience, there was nothing I could do or say to a funder 
to get them to give me money. The bank was a no. Investors were like, no. You know, they're just, mm-hmm. it wasn't there. And then, you know, in our family, we didn't just have a trust fund or money saved. So I literally had to get a night job. And I saved the money from the night job to buy my first machine. Because I did not have anyone to give me money initially. I had to prove myself first, you mm-hmm. know. And I feel like that's something that I think a lot of entrepreneurs of color can relate to. And women can relate to. How big is Baby Ben now? Yeah, so we are now in, of course, Alaska, Washington, California. We're in Minnesota, Nevada, Arizona, Texas. We are in a lot of Florida, Georgia, Virginia, Maryland, D.C., and New York. Wow. And we are working on some more locations. So we're working on New Mexico actively. Uh, We are working on Oregon actively. And then we also have another machine coming in the Midwest to the uh, Indiana area. And we're in Texas. So as somebody who's not an entrepreneur, I can't even imagine managing a multi-state business. And you do it all from here. I do. I have a small office in Atlanta, but yeah, most of our operations are from like literally Mountain View. Like that's our headquarters. (laughs) Yeah. People don't realize that. They're like... Like, they, they think, I don't know what they think. Like, when they come to our office, the other building, they're like, oh, this is nice. I'm like, what did you think it was going to look like? Like, they're really surprised. They're like, wow. I'm like, we do have nice things over here. So, I don't know. I find pride in that. Like, it makes me really happy. Like, I could have easily been like, I'm moving to Atlanta or whatever, but I just, I understand the mission. Like, I'm meant to be headquartered in Mountain View. Like, that's what I'm meant to do. It's for a bigger reason it makes me happy when people drive by our building they're like oh like she looks like me she's a single mom like me she's in the neighborhood and we're doing you know good stuff so like that's that's something special to me is like being able to be present in spots that need to see people like me mm-hmm. speaking of buildings we are in your new building yay so talk about you you have other projects going on besides yeah, Baby yes. Ben. So talk about this project. Yes. Where so, are we? So Baby Ben is like my bill payer, but Emoja Coworking and Incubator is my community heart. So in 2019, we started a co-working space that was geared towards women businesses, um, BIPOC businesses, LGBTQ plus businesses, and ESL businesses. And anybody can use it, but it was meant to be a culture first, come as you are, safe space. So we quickly ran out of room and through my work with the community council, I'm always being kind of stalkerish and driving around Mountain View, just looking around, making sure things are safe. And that's when I remembered 3001 Porcupine Drive was empty and sitting here. And so we reached out to the city and went through a lot of steps to be able to um, purchase it and acquire the building. And, and, and that was what we did. So you're in this new building, very grassroots. We're just getting started, but we're excited to have like office space. We have meeting space, on-site childcare, kitchen, and in that theme that I was telling you earlier, I'm in Mountain View. That's important to me. Well, I will just tell our listeners that the space is beautiful. It's over 10,000 square feet. Yes. It's beautifully painted. Yay. It's uh, like a brand new building. Yes. I mean, you've done a good job. Thank you. Now hold up there, Polaris. Not everyone has wings like you. Some of us have to climb the old-fashioned way. Howdy, folks. It's your friend, the Spirit of Alaska, here. I bet you're wondering why I'm 
climbing up to the top of Flat Top. Well, not only is it a landmark the people of Anchorage take pride in, but the view is spectacular. From up here, I figure I could yell out over the city and everyone could hear how great the East Anchorage Book Club podcast is. Polaris don't think it'll work, so just in case, I hope you don't mind recommending the podcast to your friends, family, and co-workers. The further our reach, the more we are able to make the best podcast this city has to offer. Now, if you don't mind... I think I'll take in this gorgeous view. Take a deep breath of mountain air and announce, listen Listen to the the East East Anchorage Anchorage Book Book Club Club podcast. Podcast. Let's talk about community council. You didn't know that community councils existed until your late 20s. I mean, Mm -hmm. I didn't know about them until I was in my 40s. So you beat me there. I didn't know. I mean, I think they're like, but they're really powerful though. Like when I went in there, I will say that was the fastest civics lesson I ever had because they're so structured. There's a clear hierarchy. So like that's where I was able to really like learn like neighborhood boundaries, mm-hmm. assembly, school board, like up the steps and get mm-hmm. to meet those people. Mm-hmm. And I will say like that's where I feel like my political confidence came from. Like, oh, okay. I can talk to these people. So I'm really big on like telling other folks you really should go to your council meeting at least one time, even if it's not for you every month. It's amazing what you learn and who you meet. Like, it's a big deal. Like, I never, I never knew we had that. So I'm happy to be part of it and, you know, help Mountain View. Right. Well, I think just for listeners who don't go to their community councils, I mean, you will speak to your senator. Yeah. You, I mean, if you want to. Your yeah. house rep, your assembly members, your school board member, they will all be there. And, I mean, yeah. in general... The, just the, the number of people is such that you could send them a direct message and they will and respond. They answer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember one meeting, we had Walker, Governor Walker just popped up mm. in the meeting one time and they're like, who planned that? I'm like, none of us. He just came to the meeting. So, I mean, like you said, you never know, but they do answer. So, I feel like it's very um, influential. I think they're really effective. You recently organized the Juneteenth celebration here mm-hmm. in Anchorage. It was an enormous success. It's, I would say, by far the biggest festivities we've ever had yeah. here. I assume that grew out of your political work that came from community council. How did that happen? How did you end up organizing yeah. Juneteenth? Yeah, so honestly, my backstory with Juneteenth is just growing up as a little black girl in Anchorage knowing Juneteenth was that weekend to see other brown faces. I think half half the kids in Anchorage, we didn't really know what Juneteenth was. We just knew that was the place to be. Our parents got excited and we had to go. So I always re- grew up remembering, like, I might not see black people all year and other people of color all year, but I know what my weekend is. And for some reason, June, we all come outside. And it's beautiful and it's cultural and it's positive. And, of course, we had, like, community issues and rifts and things like that that resulted in it going away for a few years. So for me, I just missed what we had. And so I made it a point to go to some of the past coordinators and just say, can I have your blessing? Can you support me? I just miss what we used to have. And I just want to see it come back. And honestly, that's, that's how I got into it. I will say it's one of the hardest events I've ever planned. It's a lot of steps and feelings and emotions and personalities, but I would do it again because I know our community needs it and I love how happy, you know, everybody was there. Like, this is how I remember it being when we always say back in the day, you Mm -hmm. know. What's your feeling about race relations in Anchorage? 
Yeah, I openly say we have two anchorages. I think we have the anchorage that prides itself on being welcoming and talking about how we have all these great cultures and diversity, how CNN ranked us the most diverse, how ASD has so many languages. But on the flip side, we also don't have that diversity in the places that we really need to see it. So it's easy to say, look how diverse we are. But if it's not representative in places where it needs to be, like positions of power, funding allocation, school stats, graduation, that stuff, it it begs the question, what's the problem? So I can say I personally, and I can't speak for everyone, I've walked on the fine line of like, we have two anchorages. We have this inclusive, beautiful anchorage, and we have an anchorage that's a little, um, we have a lot to learn in some areas, like not everybody feels that it's welcoming and mm-hmm. inclusive, mm-hmm. right? So how do you amplify those voices and do better without taking it personal and being offended? Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is famous for the 1619 Project, mm-hmm. but prior to that, most of her reporting was in race and education. Right. And she, I listened to an interview with her a few years ago where she talked about choosing not only to... As a, as a successful black woman choosing to live right. in a minority predominant area and to send her children to that public school. Yeah. Because as a woman of means, she could have moved to right. a richer neighborhood yeah. and sent her kids to a quote-unquote better school. Yes. So it sounds like you are doing something similar. Yes. You could definitely, yeah. if you wanted to, yeah. move to South Anchorage. Yeah, yes. You know, buy something big in exactly. Eagle River. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the decision to stay in Mountain Dew? Not why you came in the first place, yeah. but to stay here. I mean, for me, it's like like that old saying, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. It's easy to advocate and talk about what we need to do better, where we can find innovation, how we can help people. It's easy to have a lot of those conversations that are, we got to help those people, Mm -hmm. those people who are homeless or those people who are low income or those people who don't have a car or those people that... But when you say those people that, you are disconnecting yourself. And so for me, it was saying I have a shared responsibility to practice what I preach and I have a shared responsibility to be the change that I want to see. If I am saying that I believe in people, I believe in community, I believe in all parts and I want to see it do better, I can't do that by running away. I know I'm a good mom and I know my kids have me and therefore I feel strong enough that I could curb what they might encounter in what people believe Mountain View or those kind of areas is. But there are a lot of kids and people who don't have that. And Anchorage also is still working to do better about stereotyping like Mountain Views and Fair Views. And so for me, the decision to stay was hard for others to accept of me. Mm-hmm. I didn't, my faith was unshaken when I said I'm staying. But every week... I'm having to explain to someone, comment, defend, get on KTUU and all these places and say, no neighborhood's perfect, everyone has problems, hey, you're being biased, so I I, I resonate with her and her decision. I, I just feel like, you know, it isn't for everyone, but I feel like if there's people who stay in these areas that need it, it makes a big difference. Other, otherwise, you have kids and people who feel like they've been forgotten or they're less than, and I don't want to 
I don't want to contribute to that. I want to help and empower, and in order to do that, I got to be there. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay in that decision, still teaching white people to be okay in that decision, teaching people how to change their talk about neighborhoods and people who are going through things like you, like I don't say people like homeless people. I say people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. I don't say low income people, people who are on a lower income. So you're learning to take the situation and disassociate it from the person so they don't feel like that's who they are and that's all they are. And I feel like I couldn't do that and I wouldn't have the trust of people around me if I didn't practice what I preach and live alongside people. Some people in Mountain View are doing amazing and they're good too. Others are struggling, but the thing is we're together and we're trying to like uplift each other. Another point that Nicole Hannah-Jones has made is about white people mm-hmm. and white liberals. And what she said, has said in the past is that white liberals love to talk about integration, mm-hmm. helping uh, minority business owners, yeah. you know, doing what you can to make the world a better place, except when it comes to their own children. And what she says is that it's all about integration. It's all about, you know, doing what's best for everyone until their children are involved. They will send their kid to the charter school. They will send their school kids to the uh, predominantly white private school rather than send them to a lower income uh, minority predominant public school. Right. Because they don't want their children to, quote, suffer for going to a, quote, bad school. Right. Do you see evidence of that here? Um, a little, a little bit. I mean, I, I think so. I think, um, you know, we do have that here. And I do think that if you ask some parents, they wouldn't, they would tell you they don't see it that way. They would just say, I just want little Billy to have the best. Mm-hmm. I just, it's more convenient. I love the way that they teach. I love what they do, whatever. And I counter to that we can make any school we want it to be if we work together. Um, that's number one. Number two, I would counter situations. It's not like it's contagious, you know, in the sense of like, if they go to that school, are you worried something's going to get on them? Mm-hmm. You know, so I see it a little bit. I do. I mean, I hear I hear the talk about the businesses. I hear that that same local um, talk. You can tell who, who actually does it and like where it's more like rhetoric related, you know. But um yeah, I've, I've seen that. I've definitely seen that locally. And with that, I've seen folks say, no, 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 it's not me. I'm different. Mm-hmm. It's not that. It's just I'm different. But, you know, like to your point, you can change the school. You can change the circumstances work together. But you can't say you're about it and you want to help and be a change maker and then try to shield yours from that. If you think you have a better situation or an answer or one that someone can benefit from, Maybe my child would benefit from your child. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they need to see each other. Maybe we got to have a, a group, a play date. Maybe they should go to that school. So, you know, ultimately each parent makes their own decisions. But I have seen that quite a bit. Um, yeah. Well, full disclosure, my child goes to a charter school. Well, he needs to come to Mountain View. I know. Right? Well, you know, well, here's the thing, though. I, I, I've had this conversation with school board members. Yeah. Where we talk about access to the charter schools, because technically anyone can apply. Right. Any anyone can apply. Their child can get in. But this is the thing: the bus doesn't take them there. Exactly. So if you have two working parents, yeah. How do they get their child to uh, 
a language immersion school that is That's a 15-minute drive away right. and get them picked up. You have to have resources. Yeah. Although on paper, it would say like, well, any kid can go here. Exactly. Not any kid can go here. And the thing is, like, and there's parents in neighborhood schools who want their kids to go to those programs. Like, right. You know, like, I'm sure I could sacrifice and figure out how to get my kids there. But like you said, it's driving. Mm-hmm. It's work. It's after school. Some mm-hmm. have fees. They're going on these trips. And then the big elephant in the room is, do I think my kids are going to be supported? Do they understand my kids' cultural needs? I got to worry about bias treatment. Are they going to be, you know, suspended, reprimanded? So there's so many questions that I think make some parents shy away and say, I'm going to charge a special way. And other parents say, well, I don't think I have any choice but to just tough it out in this neighborhood school or this way. Because you don't always think there's a way, you know, mm-hmm. a way for you. Or a way to do it. And I can say, honestly, if it weren't for my kids going to a William Tyson, I don't think I would have been able to do half the things I did with Baby Vin and them going to a Title I school. Because their after school was on site. That was paid for. They recognized it. When they were younger, like in Head Start and stuff, you know, there were times when we had kind of enough groceries, but I'm sure they were probably still hungry. They got to eat there. So I feel like you know, sometimes like other parents like myself and maybe other ones who are still more so struggling, we're just trying to survive. And of course you want to have better opportunities and things like that for your kids, but sometimes you can't see yourself there yet. So we don't think charter schools and private schools and that stuff is obtainable. Sometimes it's not, but it doesn't mean we don't want the best for our kids. You know, I think I think that's a conversation and reform I would love to see happen is what can you do to make that stuff really more accessible? Well, there's also the impression that certain schools are better than others Mm -hmm. that may not be grounded in reality. We had a previous podcast guest who talked about a mom sacrificing to send their kids to a private school, and ultimately their needs were not being met. They were paying money for a less good education. That's that's look. That's another good one. I uh, I had one of my employees say. Your school does piano lessons? Such and such goes to private Lutheran school. They don't do that. And I'm like, where do your kids go? I'm like, Tyson Elementary. (laughs) They're like, what? And I'm like, not only do we have violin lessons, we have cultural hallways and we do this and we do that. But again, it's, we have great teachers and you have Mr. Keto and those people who said, it doesn't matter where your school is. I'm going to make it be that. Had I listened to outside influences and I just was believed the bias, I wouldn't have allowed myself to believe a school in Mountain View was capable of being to that level, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm like, wow, I tell parents all the time, you should come to Tyson. It's great. Like, a little secret school down the hill. Come on over. And it's it's amazing. Like, so I'm so happy with my kids there. I'm like, they don't got to go anywhere. I feel like their needs are met there. They're happy. They're informed. They're educated. And But not everyone is comfortable enough or, I guess, brave enough to tell other people that. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It takes a level of being able to be firm. Today is July 4th. Yes, it is July 4th. <laughs> it is July 4th. So talk to us a little bit about what July 4th means to you. Yeah. As I've gotten older, it has changed. I recognize to many it is Freedom Day for our country. I have a lot of veterans in my family and therefore I always maintain my civility out of respect for them some of which fought for America and lost their life. But I would be remiss if I didn't say, as an African-American woman whose family had a lot of Eidos 
which is just ancestors of African descent who were enslaved. I am a little disconnected. Um, for me, I, I understand the celebration of our, our country, but my people weren't free. Like we weren't free for another what two hundred years, hundred years or so. So it's a it's an interesting disconnect as I've gotten older. It's a common courtesy and respect. Like I get it, but I I feel like I I've, as I've gotten older, I celebrate Juneteenth like July Fourth. Mm-hmm. So I've matured enough to like not you know be like angry like ah on my face. Were you me. ever? I was. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> you know, I think everyone had that phase. I had my early twenties like burn mm-hmm. establishment, and mad at everyone. But I had to learn to still feel that, but channel it differently. Mm-hmm. So now I'm just really like, it's there. If that's what you want to do, great. But I recognize like for me, Juneteenth is that special day. Mm-hmm. You know, out of respect for people who are in the military, my granddad and things like that. I totally get it. But we have to also recognize a lot of people in our country were not free on that day. And a lot of people in our country died to help the country become free and they still weren't free. And so it's a bittersweet moment. I kind of, I kind of wish there was a way and I've been thinking about it, like how to integrate Juneteenth and remind them how they go together. Like, I don't even know a Juneteenth float or something. Annette Gordon-Reed wrote a book last year called On Juneteenth. Yeah. And this year she said that what she would wish for all Americans is that period between Juneteenth and July 4th to meditate on. I like that. Meditate on what it means to have a national holiday celebrating freedom when so many millions of people didn't have no relationship to that because they were enslaved. And then think about, like, and just think about how deep that is. Like, I don't think people understand how deep that is. Like, June 19th is a federal holiday celebrating the freeing of slaves in 1865. And then, like, 10 days later, Mm -hmm. we're celebrating some other freedom 100 years sooner. There has got to be some discussion and resolve around how those two coexist and work off of each other, you know? You can't have one without the other, and you can't act like 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 this year. I've I've seen more Juneteenth hostility than I know what to do with it. But it's just like that's the part of American history. Like, don't take it personal. We weren't there when it happened, but we are the keepers of what happened as a result of being here now. So we can't shy from it, you know. So for those that are like, you know, get over it, or you should be ashamed of yourself. It's Fourth of July. It's deeper than that. Like, right. you know, it's just it's just deeper. It's not that simple. So you can't just dismiss it like that. So I I've, I've learned to articulate that better than old Jasmine did. Old Jasmine's like, that set it off. It's it's just different now. Like it's with Juneteenth being a federal holiday. I love the idea of people processing and understanding. You have. I'm free from being a slave in 1865 and then the country got free. What is going in? What's in the middle here? Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. You mm-hmm. know, last question we ask of all of our, okay. All of our listeners. Are you ready? I'm ready. Um, what book do you recommend to all our listeners? Oh gosh. Okay. <laughs> so I'm kind of weird. Like I, um, I haven't, I haven't got to read as much lately. I'm trying to think of what the last book I read that I really, really enjoyed. And I believe it was a book about, probably, I think it was about Opal Lee. So this is a kid book. I was reading one of her Juneteenth books to the kids. So I feel like this sounds kind of... So for our listeners, we attended an event with Opal Lee. Who was Opal, yes. Yes. Um, And so uh, you tell us who Opal Lee is. Yes. So Opal Lee is the grandmother of Juneteenth. I have the privilege of talking to her so many times on our national Juneteenth observation calls on Saturdays. 
She is affectionately called Mother Opal, Grandmother Opal. Um, she taught us to always end our calls of all things Juneteenth. And she wrote a line of children books. And she's 95. Yeah, she's like 95 walking three miles yes. in every city to just make it a federal holiday. Literally by the president when the bill was signed. So honestly, I haven't been able to read any deep literature, but I will say if you have kids or you want a simplistic understanding of Juneteenth, I read her children's book to my kids and they loved it. And I think that was a really good, like simplified to the point way to start about what Juneteenth mm -hmm. is. So I would definitely recommend that read that's relevant. Aside from that, in general, I'm really big on like historical nonfiction, any, anything around that. So I love that. I love Africana books. That's what I would tell you to read. If you ever get time, you should read the Africana Almanac. It is a world encyclopedia of all things African diaspora history from well before slavery, starting off in Africa with its original name all the way to first black president of the United States. Um, I read a few volumes of that every couple months to keep my brain stimulated. So great, great read if you want 9,000 pages of <laughs> black history. Well, Jasmine Smith, I want to thank you so much for being on the thank podcast you. today. Not only that, I want to thank you for all the work that you do thank to you. not only make Mountain View, but to make Anchorage a better place. Thank you. Thank you for what you did for Juneteenth. Thank was, you. It was a great celebration this year. And um, we will uh, have you back on the podcast because I, I will tell you, I, I am, I'm quite sure that you have uh, a lot of big chapters ahead. Oh, I'm ready. Thanks so much. And actually, I'm going to put a plug in this stealing your show. I would like to interview on your podcast one day. Have you done that? No, no. So I'm saying maybe I can ask Rosalind, hint, hint, the tag team, and we can interview <laughs> you on your podcast. Okay, we will, we, we will see what we can do. Okay. Hey, thanks again. Thank you. Frederick Douglass was born a slave in Maryland in 1817, but he escaped and became a national leader in the anti-slavery movement. He was an African-American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman. What to the Slave is the 4th of July is the title now given to a speech by Frederick Douglass delivered by him on July 5th, 1852 at Corinthian Hall in Rochester, New York. Here to read excerpts from that work is former staffer to Governor Bill Walker and lifelong Alaskan, Jonathan Taylor. The speech written by Frederick Douglass is almost an hour long, and this abridged version is only 13 minutes. So do yourself a favor and read the entire speech. It's available online. So again, here is Jonathan Taylor reading part of What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. Fellow citizens, above your national tumultuous joy, I hear the mournful wail of millions whose chains, heavy and grievous yesterday, are today rendered more intolerable by the jubilee shouts that reach them. If I do forget, if I do not faithfully remember those bleeding children of sorrow this day, may my right hand forget her cunning, and may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. To forget them, to pass lightly over their wrongs, and to chime in with the popular theme, would be treason most scandalous and shocking, and would make me a reproach before God and the world. My subject, then, fellow citizens, is American slavery. I shall see this day and its popular characteristics from the slave's point of view. Standing there, identified with the American bondman, making his wrongs mine, and I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that the character and conduct of this nation never looked blacker to me than on this 4th of July. Whether we turn to the declarations of the past or to the professions of the present, 
the conduct of the nation seems equally hideous and revolting. America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Standing with God and the crushed and bleeding slave on this occasion, I will, in the name of humanity, which is outraged in the name of liberty, which is fettered in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce, with all the emphasis I can command, everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will use the severest language I can command, and yet not one word shall escape me that any man whose judgment is not blinded by prejudice or who is not at heart a slaveholder shall not confess to be fight and just. But I fancy I hear someone of my audience say, is it just in this circumstance that you and your brother abolitionists fail to make a favorable impression on the public mind? Would you argue more and denounce less? Would you persuade more and rebuke less? your cause would be much more likely to succeed. But I submit, where all is plain, there is nothing to be argued. What is the point in the anti-slavery creed you would have me argue? On what branch of the subject do the people of this country need light? Must I undertake to prove that the slave is a man? That point is conceded already. Nobody doubts it. The slaveholders themselves acknowledge in the enactment of laws for their government. They acknowledge it when they punish disobedience on the part of the slave. There are 72 crimes in the state of Virginia, which, if committed by a black man, no matter how ignorant he be, subject him to the punishment of death, while only two of the same crimes will subject a white man to the like punishment. What is this but the acknowledgement that the slave is a moral, intellectual, and responsible being? The manhood of the slave is conceded. It is admitted in the fact that Southern statute books are covered with enactments forbidding, under severe penalties, the teaching of the slave to read or write. When you can point to any such laws in reference to the beasts of the field, then may I consent to argue the manhood of the slave. When the dogs in your streets, when the fowls of the air, when the cattle on your hills, when the fish of the sea, and the reptiles that crawl shall be unable to distinguish the slave from a brute, there will I argue with you that the slave is a man. For the present, it is enough to affirm the equal manhood of the Negro race. Is it not astonishing that we are plowing, planting, and reaping, using all kinds of mechanical tools, erecting houses, constructing bridges, building ships, working in metals of brass, iron, copper, silver, and gold, that while we are reading, writing, and ciphering, acting as clerks, merchants, and secretaries, having among us lawyers, doctors, ministers, poets, authors, editors, orators, and teachers, that while we are engaged in all manner of enterprises common to other men, digging gold in California, capturing the whale in the Pacific, feeding sheep and cattle on the hillside, living, moving, acting, thinking, planning, living in families as husbands, wives, and children, and above all, confessing and worshiping the Christian's God and looking hopefully for life and immortality beyond the grave, we are called upon to prove that we are men. 
What am I to argue that it is wrong to make men brutes, to rob them of their liberty, to work them without rages, to keep them ignorant of their relations to their fellow men, to beat them with sticks, to flay their flesh with the lash, to load their limbs with irons, to hunt them with dogs, to sell them at auction, to sunder their families, to knock out their teeth, to burn their flesh, to starve them into obedience and submission to their masters? Must I argue that a system thus marked with blood and stained with pollution is wrong? No, I will not. I have better employments for my time and strength than such arguments would imply. I was born amid such sights and scenes. To me, the American slave trade is a terrible reality. When a child, my soul was often pierced with a sense of its horrors. I lived on Philpot Street. Fells Point, Baltimore, and have watched from the wharves the slave ships in the basin, anchored from the shore, with their cargoes of human flesh waiting for favorable winds to waft them down the Chesapeake. There was, at that time, a grand slave mart kept at the head of Pratt Street by Austin Woodfolk. His agents were sent into every town and county in Maryland announcing their arrival through the papers and on flaming handbills headed cash for Negroes. These men were generally well-dressed men and very captivating in their manners, ever ready to drink, to treat, and to gamble. The fate of many a slave has depended upon the turn of a single card, and many a child has been snatched from the arms of its mother by bargains arranged in a state of brutal drunkenness. The fleshmongers gather up their victims by dozens and drive them, chained, to the general depot at Baltimore. When a sufficient number have been collected here, a ship is chartered for the purpose of conveying the forlorn crew to Mobile or to New Orleans. From the slave prison to the ship, they are usually driven in the darkness of night, for since the anti-slavery agitation, a certain caution is observed. In the deep, still darkness of midnight, I have been often aroused by the dead heavy footsteps and the piteous cries of the chained gangs that passed our door. The anguish of my boyish heart was intense, and I was often consoled when speaking to my mistress in the morning to hear her say that the custom was very wicked, that she hated to hear the rattle of the chains and the heart-rending cries. I was glad to find one who sympathized with me in my horror. Fellow citizens, this murderous traffic is today in active operation in this boasted republic. In the solitude of my spirit, I see clouds of dust raised on the highways of the South. I see the bleeding footsteps. I hear the doleful wail of feathered humanity on the way to the slave markets where the victims are to be sold like horses, sheep, and swine, knocked off to the highest bidder. There I see the tenderest ties ruthlessly broken to gratify the lust, caprice, and rapacity of the buyers and sellers of men. My soul sickens at the sight. Is this the land your fathers loved, the freedom which they toiled to win? Is this the earth whereon they moved? Are these the graves they slumber in? You declare before the world and are understood by the world to declare that you hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And yet, you hold securely 
in a bondage which, according to your own Thomas Jefferson, is worse than ages of that which your fathers rose in rebellion to oppose, a seventh part of the inhabitants of your country. Fellow citizens, I will not enlarge further on your national inconsistencies. The existence of slavery in this country brands your republicanism as a sham, your humanity as a base pretense, and your Christianity as a lie. It destroys your moral power abroad. It corrupts your politicians at home. It saps the foundation of religion. It makes your name a hissing and a byword to a mocking earth. It is the antagonistic force in your government, the only thing that seriously disturbs and endangers your union. It fetters your progress. It is the enemy of improvement, the deadly foe of education. It fosters pride. It breeds insolence. It promotes vice. It shelters crime. It is a curse to the earth that supports it. And yet, you cling to it as if it were the sheet anchor of all your hopes. Oh, be warned. Be warned, a horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you this hideous monster, and let the weight of twenty million crush and destroy it forever. Allow me to say, in conclusion, notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of the nation, I do not despair of this country. There are forces in operation which must inevitably work the downfall of slavery. The arm of the Lord is not shortened, and the doom of slavery is certain. I, therefore, leave off where I began, with hope. While drawing encouragement from the Declaration of Independence, the great principles it contains, and the genius of American institutions, my spirit is also cheered by the obvious tendencies of the age. The fiat of the Almighty, let there be light, has not yet spent its force. No abuse, no outrage, whether in taste, sport, or avarice, can now hide itself from the all-pervading light. Big thanks to Jasmine Smith and Jonathan Taylor for coming on the show today. Thank you to Corey Coolidge for making this podcast listenable. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Next week, the newly appointed minister of Anchorage Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, Reverend Lisa Adams-Sherry. Please tune in.